listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. Let's turn together in the Word of God to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, reading from the verse number 9. I, John, who also am your brother and companion in tribulation, and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Here we find John introducing himself to those that he's writing to. I, John. And really, when I look at these few verses, I want to really jump into the body and consider the words together by using some of the interrogative questions who, where, why, when, uh, those sort of questions that come. When you're considering any piece of literature, you're going to ask some of those questions off the text. So let's do that tonight. Let's look at five separate questions and seek to answer them, and hopefully we'll apply the Word of God as we go along. First of all then, who? I, John. We've mentioned in a previous study, this is John the Apostle, uh, more than likely now in his 90s the last apostle alive. He calls himself their brother and companion. The use of the term brother that's used by the various apostolic writers indicates this sense of identification, part of the same family. There's never, there's never an apostolic leadership, a sense of lording it over the flock, there's always an identifying, realizing that we are brothers together in the things of God. He draws alongside, though he's greatly aged, though he has the authority of the apostle, yet he's prepared to identify himself as a brother, and as a brother he's under, he's under Christ, his head, the elder brother. He is their companion. The word companion there is the, uh, the word for fellowship alongside a, a prefix for together. It has this sense of companionship, sharing together, fellowship together. And he identifies three areas in which they fellowship companion and tribulation in the kingdom and in the patience of Jesus Christ, if I can supply some of those words. A companion in tribulation. We've noted already in these studies that the tribulation, the persecution, is more than likely caused by the reign of Domitian in all of his cruelty in a widespread, empire-wide persecution of the Church of Christ. Great cruelty. Cruelty that we cannot imagine in terms of how Christians were suffering for the faith. John identified himself as a companion in such tribulation. He's also a companion in the kingdom. They're under the reign of Christ. 
Now, this reference to the kingdom is going to, it's going to be clear later on what that means. For what he's saying here is, though we are under the oppression of a Roman emperor, we are under a greater king, Christ. And that understanding is so important when you think about living in a fallen world, that we're part of a kingdom, a kingdom that's at war with this world, but a kingdom that is a victorious kingdom. There is no king like our king. No earthly king can compare to King Jesus, and not in power, not in glory, nor in tenderness or kindness. Our king is a gracious king, and he says, I'm, I am your companion in the kingdom. He also says he's their companion in patience, the patience of Jesus Christ. If you like, the endurance for Christ. This is the same word for endurance that we've seen. This sense of being able to stay under affliction. I think this is wonderful. A companion in tribulation. A sense of trouble and yet not being defeated. Though he's in tribulation, yet he's still a companion in endurance. They haven't given up. They haven't given up. The churches haven't given up, and neither is he. They're going to be faithful, faithful unto death, no matter what it may cause. And so John, he draws alongside them at the opening of this book, and he's saying he he understands their situation. He shares in their burdens and their afflictions. Yes, he has authority. He has excellence. He has experience. But he's, he's their kindred. He's of their flesh. And above all that, he's of the same family. And so he is not easily disregarded. How qualified he is to bring these words of comfort. That's the who. The where then is mentioned. It is the isle that is called Patmos. This is an island about 10 miles long. It was known for its volcanic structure. Rocky. Absence of many trees. Um, but it was particularly famous in the reign of Domitian for the place where the exiles were sent. It was a place of persecution, a place where you were cut off from civilization, not easy to get to, not easy to return to. Uh, this is a place of great suffering. And there are those who, who would refer to some of the early church writers and those outside the biblical narrative that says that John was in forced labor. Can you imagine that? A 90-year-old man in a forced labor on a rocky island. Well, that was what is said of John in his trouble here. The simple reference to Patmos would have caused much fear. And perhaps if you were living in Russia in previous times and you were sent to Serbia, it was something like that. You were sent to some exiled place to be away from ordinary civilization where you could not have any influence, but rather you would suffer for your faith. Which leads to the third question, why? Why is John in Patmos? Well, we're told it is for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Again, this language recurs recurs several times in the book of Revelation. Let me just note a couple with you. Verse number one, or verse number two, sorry, of the opening chapter, referring to John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ. This word testimony is connected to the word witness that we saw in verse number 5, the faithful witness. It is the word that we get our word martyrdom from. The martyr is from this word. It speaks of a witness, a legal witness, a court witness for the testimony, for the witness of Jesus Christ. 
It's also used in chapter 6. This is a significant reference here, chapter 6 and the verse number 9. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Again, this is another way of describing the testimony of Jesus Christ. And then chapter 19, Revelation 19, the verse number 10. These are just selected. There's a few other places as well. But chapter 19, verse 10. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have, that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So what you're seeing here is John is describing really what it is to be a Christian. He's not describing an unusual class of believer, but rather he is simply describing what it is to be a Christian and suffer for it. So the Christian, what's a Christian? A Christian is someone who believes the Word of God and bears public testimony of that fact. The testimony that describes Jesus he is the faithful witness. He is the faithful testimony himself. And so the testimony is from Christ, and it's about Christ. Again, of course, in these early days, some of these who were martyred were actual eyewitnesses. First-hand testimony. But our testimony is no less valid. We, we take their testimony and we share it with others for the Word of God and for the testimony it's a very simple description of what it is to be a Christian, to be a believer. And yet we have many who would take, they would take the name Christian upon their lips who deny the authority of the Word of God, deny the historical narrative of Jesus Christ, deny His virgin birth, deny His resurrection, and yet still take the name Christian. You cannot be a Christian and deny the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian, you will make publicly known your allegiance to Christ and your witness of Him in every circle of life. You see, holding the truth, holding the truth for John and for these disciples did not lead to a life of ease. It's one of the things we struggle with as Christians. If I'm on the Lord's side, why is life so difficult? If I'm on the Lord's side, if I'm doing the Lord's will, why am, I, why am I not finding life easy? Well, we're never told in the Word of God that doing the will of God will produce ease. That's one of the things the devil presents as a lie to discourage the child of God. You follow Christ, what sort of king is he? Look how you're suffering. Rather, we understand the Word of God to teach that living for Christ in a fallen world, He is the faithful witness who died for that witness, and we witness for Him. And we understand that whoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel the same shall save it. That's the why. Who, John, where, Patmos, why? For the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. When then? When? Verse number 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. On the Lord's day. That's the when. That's the Lord's day. Now, this is a, that's a fascinating term. This is the time, the only time this phrase is used. The Lord's day. Is it significant? What does it mean? 
Well, let's look at this in a, under a couple, of, a couple of thoughts. First of all, consider the title itself, The Lord's Day. I'm going to present the thesis, if you like, and then try to prove that. I'm going to suggest to you this title, The Lord's Day, is a term for the first day of the week, the Christian Sabbath. You're going to have to allow me to assume something for the sake of time this evening. I'm going to assume the continuation of a Sabbath day from the Old Testament. The creation ordinance of a special one day and seven, that day continues, the Sabbath continues. And I'm going to suggest to you that if this day is a special day, then this is the Christian Sabbath. So I'm not going to prove the perpetuity of Sabbath. But I'm going to try to prove the identification of this day as the first day of the week. And when you see how special this day is, then I believe you will see that this is the Christian Sabbath, the first day of the week. So when you think of the title here, you should note, first of all, that John assumes that what he means by the Lord's Day will be clear to the seven churches in Asia. Doesn't describe it, doesn't define it. Simply says the Lord's Day, and the assumption is that those churches will understand what he means. Oh yeah, the Lord's Day, we get that, John. We understand what you mean by the Lord's Day. That makes sense to us. The evidence of the rest of the New Testament for the observance of the first day makes this concept necessary, the idea that they understood this day. Acts chapter 20, turn back to Acts chapter 20. Uh, we, we've been here, we were here in our Sabbath school not so long ago, uh, a couple weeks ago, but Acts chapter 20. You have the descriptions of one of the ministries of, of Paul. And they came to Troas, where we abode seven days. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them. Now, what is interesting is Paul has been in Troas for seven days. But only the gathering of the church on the first day is mentioned. In the context, he's in a rush to get to Jerusalem. And yet he stays in Troas long enough to ensure that he is there for the Lord's Day. If I can insert that term, the first day of the week. He wants to speak to the whole church. The implication being this was the day when the church comes together in a corporate fashion to worship and to sit under the ministry of the Word. We also understand 1 Corinthians 16, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store. So this idea of the Lord's Day was known to the churches. We know that in Asia, in Acts, they were meeting on the first day of the week. Furthermore, there is no other alternative that makes sense. Some have tried to give the impression here, anti-Sabbatarians would give the impression here that what's in view here is that John was in the Spirit on the day of the Lord. Looking ahead to some prophetic fashion, he was, he was in prophecy and he was taken forward in time to be there when the day of the Lord occurs, i.e. the Lord's return. But that's... That is to really deny the very grammar that's used here. The day of the Lord is used, but not in this form or this structure. This is not the day of the Lord in the sense of the Lord's return. The designation, the Lord's day, is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
It's a day that's connected particularly to his lordship. And there's only one day that connects his lordship with a particular day. And when you understand the concept of Jesus as the Messiah being Lord, you know that connects to his resurrection. On the first day of the week, he rises from the dead. He is a name above every name. He's defeated death. He's been obedient to death, the death of the cross, wherefore God highly exalts him. There's a connection between Christ's lordship and the first day of the week. Another line of proof beyond this is the fact that in the uninspired scripture or the uninspired literature of that time, the Lord's Day was used to describe the first day of the week. Ignatius, the church father, writing in the early 100s, referred to the Lord's Day. The Didache was a, a writing of the Twelve Apostles, supposedly, uh, and it was a reflection of, of their teaching, not written by them, but their teaching was recorded. They also referred to the Lord's Day. So the truth, the title, the title is there, the Lord's Day, identifying with the first day of the week. The truth implied from that then, secondly, is that this is a day of the Lord's institution. The Lord's Day. It's a day that belongs to the Lord in a special way. A day that he institutes and a day of his possession. In the grammar, this idea of the Lord's day is a strong possessive. Now you say, well, all days are the Lord's. So why use this term? Well, you only use this term if it has significance. And it indicates a day above all days, especially the Lord's day. That's the idea. I turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Because this little term, Lord's, is only used in one other place. And it's used in 1 Corinthians 11, verse number 20. When ye come together therefore unto one place, this is not to eat, and here's the term, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. It's the only occurrence of this word, Lord's. Isn't every supper the Lord's? Aren't we to eat every meal is unto the Lord? Aren't we to see every meal is holy to the Lord? So therefore, what is this Lord's Supper? Well, we know it refers to communion, a special Christian religious observance. The supper that originates in Christ's word and is regulated by Christ himself. The Lord's Supper. And that parallel usage indicates that this day, referred to in Revelation chapter 1, this is the Lord's day. Belongs to the Lord. Instituted by the Lord. And connects, connects with the Old Testament term for the Sabbath. Isaiah 58, my holy day, the holy of the Lord. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. And so you put all this together. The Lord's day is the first day of the week. Instituted by Christ, memorializing his resurrection. Special day, peculiar day, day above days, the Christian Sabbath. That's the when. Now, when you identify this day, it is not accidental that on this day we see what happens in John's experience. So that's the what. We've considered the who, John, 
where, why, when, and now what? What happens to John on the Lord's day? Well, we're told, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. And then verse number 12, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me. What happens when John is in the Spirit on the Lord's day? He hears and sees Christ. He hears a voice like a trumpet. Not a trumpet, but a voice as of a trumpet, verse number 10. The idea of the trumpet back in the Old Testament was used when God was to impart to his people anything of importance. He gathers the people together by the means of a trumpet. Exodus 19, Leviticus 25, you can see those various references. The trumpet is used. Christ's voice. It's in the Word, a gathering call. The Lord's Day, the day when Christ calls people to gather to hear His Word. That's the idea here. It's a day that we hear Christ and we see Christ. We will come to the vision in future studies, but John's purpose here is not to paint a picture whereby we could draw Christ. It is not to tell us what He looks like. It is to tell us who He is. And so in the Lord's day, we are to come to see Christ in terms of who he is, what he's like, not what he looks like, but who he is in his character, in his person, and his work. And in John, John is in the Spirit on this day when he hears and sees Christ. In the Spirit, if you think of Galatians, in the Spirit, but not in the flesh, separate from the world, sanctified by the Spirit ready, prepared in heart to see Christ. Now for us, we will not have the particular experience of John, but it does set a pattern for us that on this day of days, this was the day the Lord comes and meets with John and he hears Christ's voice and sees Christ and has the word given unto him. None of that, I believe, dear brethren and sisters, none of that is accidental. It is God's special day. So as we look at those various questions in this text, let me just present some closing, closing thoughts. I think when you consider John here, I think we should rejoice in the grace of God that enables such endurance. Ninety years old, great persecution, and yet he's faithful in his witness for Christ. God's grace is able to keep. That's true for those who are coming to the end of their years and they wonder, will they be able to keep on going on, taking one step after the other in the things of Christ? What an encouragement John is. Not because John is unique. Remember, do you remember who John was? John's going to rain down fire. John wants to sit at the right hand. John's got all of these problems in his life. And yet here we find at the end of his life, he's kept by the power of God. In the midst of his own weaknesses and sins, his own personality, he knows the grace and the power of God and he keeps being faithful to Christ to the end. God can do that for you. And so times of discouragement come and you wonder, I don't think I'll make it through today, let alone to my 80th or 90th year, but you can in the grace of God. So I, I can present John to you here as a rebuke. Look at John, you need to do better. 
But I'd rather you see John as a model of Christ's work in his life. That you'd see, God can do for me what he did for John. He's kept a wonderful testimony. Rejoice in the grace of God. And secondly, reaffirm, reaffirm the Lord's authority over his day. In your soul tonight, I encourage you to revise your understanding of the Lord's day. The Sabbath, the day of Christ's appointment under his authority. I be honest with you, I think in the church broadly, the COVID pandemic has shaken Sabbath habits. People have been shaken from those things that they were doing routinely. And there were challenges in church life. There were reasons whereby people would have chosen not to gather. And it's certainly shaken people. But we need to come back to the realization, this is the Lord's day. It's the day that he's appointed the day where his voice is as a trumpet that gathers us together that we would hear from the Lord and we'd see Christ in the Word. We need to reaffirm this day in our families, in our neighborhoods. This is not a day open for debate and discussion as to what we should and shouldn't do. This is a day under Christ's authority, and that authority must pass from the church to your homes to your individual lives. It's the Lord's day. It's not your day to do with as you please. It belongs to Christ. And so, in the third place, I would ask that you request that the Lord's Spirit be on us on these days, that wherever and whenever we can meet, we would hear and see Christ. Though John is in isolation, and though he's in tribulation, he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And he is greatly blessed in such a state. So we pray for many things each evening. We come together for prayer. But let me, let me ask you to keep at the top of your prayer list, Lord, may we be in the Spirit this Lord's day. For us to see and hear Christ, we must be in the Spirit. Maybe put the flesh to death. May we depend upon the Spirit, and may we know the blessing of God upon us. These are words just packed full of instruction, information. But they do give me a longing. Oh, I, I want this, Lord. I want to know. I want to know what it is to be in the Spirit in the Lord's day, that I would hear and see my Savior. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.